Okay, you've got until the bottom of this strongbow to get through this reading before I'm not going to be any use to you anymore. <laughs> Damn, okay. I thought I'd put us on a clock. It'd be fun. Question number one, did you do the reading? I did. I hated it. Okay. <laughs> I felt like like I was channeling your students of like, this sucks, this is boring, I don't want to do it. But <laughs> I guess I, I channeled the more guilt-fueled uh, variety that, that does it, just complains the whole time. Well, that's appreciated because the modern student both doesn't do it and complains the whole time. Oh. But they don't do it. That's dumb. So you can't even, you know, can't even get both one or the other, you know, like, well, at least they're not bitching. I know they didn't do it, but they're, they're quiet. But <laughs> So what are we talking about? We're talking about reading Frederick Engels's The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. So today we'll be covering sections one and two. Uh, if you are using the PDF downloaded from Marxist.org, that takes you up uh, to page... 45. So we'll get to the rest of it later. I know you're probably like, there's so many more sections, but like these first two sections are very big. Quick trigger warning here throughout. We talk about it, uh, but there is some uncomfy language surrounding uh, the categorization of people. Uh, The word savage is thrown around a lot. Uh, We talk a little bit about the historical context of that. And then we also, uh, unfortunately, have to talk about sexual assault. We are talking about uh, marriage and the history of marriage. So, like, there's a lot of that, too. So uh, if that's a sensitive topic for you, just keep that in mind. You can find this for free on goodoldmarxists.org. That's where I got it. I got a PDF, and I'll be uploading my PDF marked up with notes. Mostly just like, this part sucks, I didn't read it. Uh, And little doodles, my favorite doodle, I will talk about later. Yeah, this was written in 1884, and in a large kind of chunk of it, it's kind of a a commentary on a work by anthropologist Lewis H. Morgan. And both Marx and Engels thought, wow, interesting guy. Marx took these notes on him uh, and kind of aimed to write something up on him, but he died. How young was Marx when he died? He was 64. That's relatively young. This is only the year after he died, so I was, you know, Engels was still going through it, I guess. <laughs> He's like, this is how I process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Writing a really convoluted book. All right, jumping into part one, the stages of prehistoric culture. So broadly speaking, he's kind of, again, initially sort of summarizing Morgan's findings and you know he, he cites him throughout and then also kind of coupling this with his own you know takes on it i suppose and quoting marx as he goes as well like oh i found this is in his notes sort of thing the stages of prehistoric culture he divides up into uh three categories which we should say at the time were nicer than they sound now now they sound kind of mean they sound super racist so like just up top. I mean, maybe it's a translation thing, too, but there's just going to be a lot of uncomfy terms here today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's not really a way around that. That's just the terms they use. Uh, stage one being savagery. Cool. Stage two being barbarism. Cool. And then stage three being civilization. Now, I would kind of push back on that while these have been used in racist ways, 
it does become clear in the study that he applies these to, you know, white cultures as well. Yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't think he's necessarily coming from like a racist lens here. I think it's just like it's kind of a trip to read those words over and over again. Like, oh, you're just calling dudes savages. That's cool. Yeah, so. <laughs> and pretty casually too. He's just like, mm-hmm. okay. uh, they. He also divides them into like sub stages within. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is low stage savagery. This is mid stage savagery. <laughs> Which just sounds so much worse. Like, all he's really just talking about like human evolution, like large chunks of time. Yeah, and not so much we should say biological human evolution this is all Mm, dealing with anthropologically or anatomically um modern humans but the civilizational like things that they have yeah yeah the development of their and he kind of spells this out of uh everything depending on their productive forces to use kind of the marxist term of it is it's economics it's driven by how they can produce the necessities of life yeah, so the thesis, if you're like, Christine, I don't want to read this book. <laughs> I got you. So the thesis is productive forces, a.k.a. how you can get food and more humans affects your social structures, uh, your marriage and family structures, how that works out, uh, and affects, obviously, your economy, too. Yeah, your economy, your government, crucially, mm, Yeah, yeah. Uh, the class antagonisms. It's the driver of it, and this is a study of how that has happened and how that could change in the future. All right, so you have the three civil uh, stages of prehistoric culture, savagery being, and we don't have to get into like the details of it here. To outline it, as he does at the end, he gives you a TLDR. Yes, I love that part. <laughs> savagery, the period in which man's appropriation of products in their natural state predominates. The pro- products of human art are chiefly instruments which assist this appropriation. This is your basic era, all right? Everyone's ordering PSLs? Yeah, you're, you're, you are existing, okay? <laughs> uh, you can do little more than order Uber Eats every day. Uh, you're changing clothes, you know, once every week or something. You're, you're really <laughs> just struggling, all right? Uh, you're, you're getting by. And yeah, that's kind yeah. of everything is, is built on survival. Yeah, you're just getting fucking berries and whatever the hell you can get. Yeah. The kind of flip side or the good side of that is that it's very egalitarian. Everyone's kind of doing the same thing. There's, it's, everyone is geared towards production of enough food. There's, there's no real distinction of anything. Then you get up to barbarism. You graduate from savagery school up to barbarism. <laughs> there's a little ceremony. All the parents take videos. It's cute. You get your barber's clippers. Yeah, barbarism. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you start shaving all the hair in sight. The period during which man learns to breed domestic animals and to practice agriculture acquires methods of increasing the supply of natural products by human activity. So now you can cook basic meals. You're no longer just struggling each time. You know, now you have a little bit of capability because of the agricultural revolution. So you can grow your own food. You can, uh, crucially before that, start hurting your own animals, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, it seems like he's pointing to a few like markers, uh, one being the introduction of pottery, uh, another uh, being what kinds of animals there were around to domesticate. Uh, so this is where he kind of starts splitting off 
uh, different sections of people saying, well, you know, like in the Americas, you didn't have a lot of animals that were able to be domesticated. Uh, those were all brought over. Uh, so you have like some turkey in Mexico and like llamas from uh, Peru. Uh, but the large portion of this domestication came from uh, like China and Europe. So, yeah. And in terms of agriculture, I did like that apparently um, that he was a corn fanboy. Dude loved so. corn. I love that. <laughs> he said corn, the best grain. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. He's like just into it, I guess. He's a he's a corn person. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> he, he would fit in well with our family. Yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining him with a little tortilla. He's just yeah, just patting it out. He gets bits of tortillas in that huge beard of his. Oh yeah. So that's uh that characterizes barbarism and same thing, you have low stage barbarism, mid stage barbarism upper stage barbarism. Uh, and then finally you get to civilization, the period in which man learns a more advanced application of work to the products of nature, the period of industry proper and of art. So I have kind of a question. Yeah. This is just another one of those uncomfy terms. So in the barbarism section, he's talking about the, the beneficial effect of some of the foods now available to people, uh, mm. which I've talked about on the show before are important. It's a big deal when you're able to get more consistent calories and things like that. He does kind of get into some race science, though. The small brain. The skull width. Yeah, he starts measuring brains. So I think there, either he was engaging in race science, I'm not sure if that's what he's referring to, or conflating more. Because So I think that all of this, uh, I, I was under the impression all of this savagery, barbarism, civilization was taking place under anatomically modern humans. If you're talking about like human ancestor subspecies stuff, like so, we now now we're Homo sapiens sapiens. If you're like the immediate predecessor of Homo erectus. sapiens, we're like we're like close, and then yeah, Homo erectus and all the other ones. Uh, one of the key developments they think is that we started eating more proteins, specifically fish. Uh, and cooked fish and things to kind of uh, develop more brain mass and shit. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Like the invention of basically cooking changed yeah. our, our fucking skull. So I was thinking that this was all anatomically modern humans, but I guess it, he could be either conflating those or that actually this is stretched out to, to a longer time period. Yeah, I just wish that was made more clear, I guess, because I'm like, wow, that's kind of a crazy thing to read. <laughs> like, no, at some point, he quotes Morgan and says, basically, yeah, get out the calipers. These guys' brains or skulls are wider or something. Yeah, I, I mean, like, he wrote the sentence, superior development of the Aryan Semitic races. Like, that's not a great look, you know? In his defense, the Aryan race that he's referring this to is, is different. Like, this is different. It's not Nazi. It's like where the Nazis <laughs> fanboyed off of. Yeah. Uh, okay. These I just are want the, to make that clear. If someone reads this and is like, whoa guys, you didn't tell me that this was going to happen. <laughs> I didn't want to read about the Aryans. Yeah. But these Aryans are talking about, um, North, uh, North, North India. India. Yeah. Yeah. North India, um, Iran, per, that, that sort of region. That's where you, uh, get like the proto Indo-European language group and stuff is from the Aryan migrations. That was like a, a different, a different thing. And Semites being the like literal Semitic people living in, you know, Southwest Asia. He just says that 
different. He says, uh, is the fact that Pueblo Indians of New Mexico who are reduced to an almost entirely vegetarian diet have a smaller brain than the Indians at the lower stage of barbarism who eat more meat and fish. Like, I just, I guess, like, if this was written today, it would be more thoughtful in how it approaches, like, those kinds of things of saying, hey, this allowed them to focus more on other parts of production and not, hey, their brains are smaller. Mm, yeah, I think that, by and large, the rest of the reading basically does that. I think so. I think, I just, like, again, I'm, I'm mostly covering our asses. <laughs> 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 I'm not getting canceled for this dead man. <laughs> One also just does better, given that, okay, so given that we are all on this side of evolution, one does better to study less about how we can evolve our way into, you know, the next stage of, of liberation from all this bullshit and more, it's more useful to talk about how we can socially construct our way, you know, do revolutionary out of it. So to the extent that he does, you know, engage in any sort of incorrect way or quote this guy incorrectly or just be like, yeah, I mean, it could be sort of biological too. I don't care. Like I'm, I'm like, I don't agree with that. If he is endorsing that, I didn't pay attention that much to it. I was like, okay, that's old. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You have to read this through the lens of like, Hey, this is olden times. Like sometimes it's going to say <laughs> weird shit. Yeah. And I do think that Marx and Engels both do a really good job of never making that like the main thing they're doing. You know, it's all about how historical forces, how social forces change things. And again, I just think, They'll, they'll toss that stuff in there to an extent because people are talking like that around them. Yeah, Maybe they yeah. believe it. I don't care to the extent that they do. I hope they don't because I like them. But <laughs> that's that's how I would cover my ass is say, like, I just don't believe that as important. And I'm not sciencey enough to know the extent to which <laughs> it carries on. So. Exactly. Yeah. Like, clearly, that's not what we're about here. So, like, cool. Okay. Let's move on. So those are the, the three broad stages he's talking about. And then... Next chapter, The Family. This is where I initially got super bogged down. I was kind of struggling to get through this reading because I was struggling to figure out why I thought this was a good idea to read. I kind of got that point, too. I was like, this is really interesting, but what the fuck does it have to do with communism? So if you get that feeling while you're reading, don't worry. You probably downloaded the right PDF. We're going to make the connections. Yeah. Uh, I ended up making like a chart. For oh, these I'm so glad you did. I wanted to. Just because I couldn't understand it. <laughs> no, I'm I'm very visual. I'm so glad you did. I think that's one of my notes later of I need a fucking chart. Um, I'll be referencing it myself. And then we also kind of... We'll, we'll post it. With, it's in the notes, so... Okay, great. So the main idea here is that he is positing that in a lot of these cultures as they're moving up these steps of towards civilization they are changing their family structures to adapt he talks a lot about a term consanguinity which based on my bare understanding of latin is with blood <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um same blood same so, blood consanguine is just a way of tracking relation uh family relations he talks a lot about generations and what people call each other. Now, this is where the chart's going to come in handy. <laughs> so <laughs> among the Iroquois, whenever you have a kid, if your sibling also has a kid, uh, or if your brother, has, gender is important in this one, if your brother also has a kid, you can call that kid your kid. And your kids will call each other siblings. But if your sister has a kid, that's different. In this scenario, you're a dude. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. They're their nephews and nieces the same way in kind of modern not just American, I don't know, most cultures would kind of call that. But essentially here you yeah, there's there's this uh question of who is related, who is not, how do they come up with these and his report about Morgan's findings is that Morgan kind of peels back the mystifying nature of this and figures out, Oh, this is a system that is based upon an earlier form of marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. Cause he's talking about like the fact that these kinds of names and relationships can be found all over the world. He's referencing uh, Southern India. He's talking about the sandwich islands in Hawaii. Like he's just like, dude, like this is not a quinky dink. <laughs> yeah. Whereas some people he was saying, we're kind of stupidly arguing like, Oh, they just, you know, they like you. So they're saying brother, like, no man, like there's not, they're not stupid. Like they're not just like incorrectly using the terms. They're using them correctly. You're hearing it right. Like there's a reason. And Morgan's the one who kind of says, Oh, Hey, look, there is a different family system uh, in Hawaii that kind of explains or kind of shows evidence of why, of where this could have come from a different form of marriage, basically that explains where you could get a society where all the children of uh, like brothers and sisters of that generation would be considered in common. Like why, where you would have that. I thought this was really interesting. Like it points to a more obviously generational style of raising family. Like you're, all living in the same house, or at least very close to each other. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was kind of cool of like, Hey, you're just as responsible for this kid as I am. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I would love to have some, some co-parents jump in in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The whole, the whole generation kind of plays a role. So here in this section, there's like a lot that I didn't break down passage by passage. Cause I was really still trying to grapple with what was happening. You know, just, I guess, stop me if I jump ahead or something, because I was really just trying to summarize this part, because it was, yeah, yeah. It gets really it's, detailed about, like, who's banging who, and... It's very specific. Um, it gets really in the weeds about that stuff. I think it's really interesting. I, I liked learning about, like, the Hawaiian culture and the uh, Iroquois culture in that way. But, yeah, I was like, this is cool, but what am I doing here? <laughs> From kind of this introduction of the family section we kind of get the idea that he's pointing towards using uh, existing societies to point backward in history and kind of do some detective work and figure out, okay, what came, what might've come before this? Yeah. He, he gives an example, which I thought was cool of uh, someone found a, a marsupial skeleton near Paris and you're able to then say, well, I guess they used to live here. We used to have marsupials, which I was like, I don't fucking know that. That's sick. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you think in his little pocket, he had baguettes? <laughs> little kangaroo beret mm -hmm. this sort of approach is interesting he uses of course the example the, the main example of going from the iroquois terms to lynn looking back and say hey there was there was um some other family form before this uh where that was indeed the case where you had this dividing up by gens he'll come to call them of like clan structures sort of thing and that in that society, you had like these these group, different group marriages. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. Jens, that's like 
the people in your group and whether that group means you can bang people in here or you absolutely cannot bang people in here. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. There's different rules. There's, there's different, some societies are like, this is the banging section. And some people are like, no, 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 no. You only bang outside the gens. Mm, yeah. For the most part, it seems like the tendency is toward the latter. Yes. Yes. The other one seems to more be the exception. Long story short here. He, he kind of walks us through like how, marriage and specifically like intercourse to have children procreation i guess evolved from like anyone can do anybody to like pretty basic rules that we as humans have now of like hey you know keep it out of the family (laughs) y'all yeah that's where he was kind of doing this detective worker saying like okay you know if you do have this group marriage thing that the oldest that we found in the hawaiian situation then what would have been before that like how how could that have you know kind of theorized what that could have looked like. And that's where you're saying, yeah, their terminology is everyone on the brother and sister level is that those are all like automatically married to each other. So that must've been what it was like before then. And so going back from there, there's like a, a hypothetical of, okay, we don't really have any, this is just theorized basically of needing to have a herd big enough to survive. Uh, here he kind of talks about like jealousy being like this antagonistic force towards having a herd, but humans needing to survive a harsh environment had to stick together well enough to basically have a herd. So he's like, yeah, basically in the early days, like you said, it was just a free for all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like we ain't, we ain't got the big teeth and claws, so stick together. Yeah. And so basically at that point, the primitive promiscuity section, it was just a free for all. And again, he's kind of admitting there's not like, real evidence for this it just logically seems like that must have been where we started yeah yeah and i i like how he he tries you know he takes a little detour into the animal kingdom for a minute and he's like well we can't just say like we birds do this so like we clearly do like we're not birds but he, he does look to that for inspiration i guess of like yeah like you can see kind of why they would be into either polygamy or uh what's the other one? polyandry monogamy etc but we're just trying to extrapolate based on like the oldest family structures we can find i like that too your biological anthropologists and your they're they're fine actually but your your evolutionary psychologists are the ones that are like problematic a lot of times of like well, you know, we're just animals. Men like so. this because yeah. they have to fuck everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so patriarchy. like it's uh-huh. just Let's just do that forever. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of the theorized beginning. And then you, like you said, increase the rules to become gradually more and more, you know, restrictive in terms of co-sanguinous relations. You draw that circle of people you really should not be mating with. <laughs> Wider and wider. We're talking about incest, okay? Yeah. (laughs) They they say stop doing that. (laughs) And so, yeah, the the co-sanguine stage is the one, you know, theorized to be right before the Hawaiian one they were looking at, the the Punaluan, which is everyone in the same generation is automatically married. So it's essentially just like not intergenerational, like parents and children, but everything besides that is like fine, it's good. Uh, and, And it's automatic. It's like assumed that that's just a thing that's possible you might have like a first wife right is that here or is that later yeah yeah he says that you know generally speaking there were obviously personal preferences because mm-hmm. again you know, we're not animals or whatever but it was also just like there was no sense of like 
propriety or permissions or things like that. It was just free. And basically the distinction, it seems like, between that very first one and the Punalan is, like, brothers and sisters were still still doing stuff in that first one. Yeah, in the first one. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so that's kind of the only limit there. And then he gets to the Punaluan family stage where you draw the line out initially no siblings and then no cousins the formation of these gens of kind of clans of people related by the mother and it is interesting that the, uh, that he kind of spells out like it had to be by the mother because nobody knew who the father was <laughs> yeah it was like you're fucking everybody who fucking knows yeah it's, it is interesting he ends up using a term later called mother right which has to do with like how you would inherit things and for a very very long time in our history like things were matrilineal yeah it does seem to uh, i was looking at some of the examples later when he starts talking about like the Greeks and the Romans and stuff is like, this is obvious in terms of like there being evidence for it, but people have come up with all sorts of weird explanations as to why like the Romans had like a gens name in there, in their like, you know, Julius Gaius Caesar or whatever, like how he has like, you know, the Julii thing and, and all that. Like everyone has like a, a weird that's, that's family name, name that's not a family name sort of thing. And it's like, where does this come ah. from? Oh, you know, they're just traditional. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it does kind of give a better explanation to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this is jumping ahead to that section too, but I, I love the connection between like, you know, the, like someone's always saying, oh, I'm, I'm fucking descended from Zeus or whatever. But like, that's really more <laughs> of a marker of what kind of clan they're from. Mm, yeah, when they get to like the... The cool animal clans and things. The animal ones neat. and the Iroquois are really cool, too. I've, I've got some opinions about which one of those are the coolest. So <laughs> we'll talk about that. All right. So at this stage, you have still group marriage. Yeah. Everybody's married to everybody. Everybody's poly. It's but chill. no, like not everyone's married not to everyone. Not every. Yeah, yeah. Now there are restrictions. Don't don't be nasty. Don't, don't bone your siblings. Don't bone your cousins. <laughs> so it's like people in the gens are married to another gens, but specifically not to anybody who they would be like related to yeah so that's why you have these formations of the gens of like these clans of yeah we're not related by our mother and you know again you would like to track the father part too but they didn't have that that'd be great (laughs) one thing i will talk about a little bit before we move on to the next stage the pairing family uh is his kind of takedown of the endogenous exogenous theory uh and the theory of the marriage by capture Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. So the marriage by capture thing, first of all, is shocking. Ugh, it's awful. I had heard about this only in a certain context, in the context of, like, in the ancient, ancient, like, the the Roman Republic, early days of something of the, well, it's it's called, like, the Rape of the Sabines or something like that. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. And, And stuff where they would just go take women from the places they were conquering and things. Mm-hmm. And it was like, this is fucking bizarre. Why do you have this in your history? This had to have happened by the criteria of embarrassment. Why are there so many paintings of this? Like what the fuck? Also that's, yeah, this is Renaissance people being horny. I think they're very horny. That that's really the extent to which I'd heard. I had no idea this was so widespread. And this actually is still a modern phenomenon in certain places of the world, which is terrible. I mean, um, but it kind of gets into like why this would be kind of an artifact of these uh, societies of uh, of these group marriage, kind of a vestige of the group marriages and like who could marry whom and having to 
go outside of the gens to find uh, someone to marry. Yeah, so basically that was just a very gross way to achieve like more genetic diversity. Yeah, he was kind of also saying that sometimes it was more or less agreed upon. Like it was, it was like staged or thing. Oh. Which, that sounds kind of okay. Like <laughs> that's just some light role play. Yeah, it's theater. <laughs> or like you know, they wanted in some cases, you know, they wanted to marry, but their families didn't, so they were just like, oh, uh, okay. Look, she's oh no, pregnant, I got so. captured. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. That sucks. There's a theory that oh, um, no. the honeymoon derives from this of like, <gasps> you just go away for a while because, you know, people are pissed <laughs> and then you come back and you're like, what the fuck? Can't do anything about it now. She's pregnant. <laughs> That's uh, so crazy. Yeah. Oh, weird people times. are gross. <laughs> oh my God. But I did like how he made fun of, what was the other guy? The, the guy he was making fun of a lot. Um, he made fun of a lot of guys. He repeatedly pilloried this guy. It was very funny. Yeah. McClellan. McClellan he fucking hates. Or McClennan, that's it. Yeah, some McClellan, Scottish guy. He was making fun of him for thinking there were like some whole tribes that were exogamous versus endogamous. Entire tribes where you could not bang anyone in the tribe. And he was like, oh, what do they do? Yeah, you they're know, not a tribe then. Like, how does that work? You know, they only do within tribe. How long is that going to last? So he's like, obviously <laughs> there are like these clans within the tribe that do that but he was just Sub making fun groups. of this dude yeah. yeah that's funny yeah he does he burns him a lot yeah <laughs> thought that guy was a moron i just thought that that like had me reading about uh, <laughs> some bride kidnappings shit. and i was like <laughs> what is this why does this happen that i've never heard of it yeah that's so what a weird like trend i mean like it's i think for me like that's it's weird that that is so culturally imprinted on us, like that we all know that that was a thing. Like, ugh, God. Okay, the pairing family. The pairing family. We are moving now, increasing the taboo to anybody you're related to, which is as it should be. Yeah, like, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, some degree of moral relativism, this, that, and the other, but my ideal society, we're going to have. <laughs> No relations. Uh, Don't do it. Okay. You're welcome to start your own commune with a different set of rules. <laughs> I just make it far away from mine. Yeah, man. I don't <laughs> want to see that. So this is the idea of the the gens, which I I don't know that that's again that's that's your group. That's like a sub sub tribe situation. Yeah, it helps me to think of it like the term clan or like family. You know unit not not you not a family unit but like a f extended a family. family like the whole yeah yeah so you have your gens and who who can you get together with in this situation the pairing family is essentially a narrowing of the group marriage to be more way more one-on-one -on -one. we could think of it as maybe temporary monogamy or monogamy that's endable on both sides and very equal i think that's a very important part of it is the the endable part on both sides part that is like kind of crazy to think about of like oh you can just get divorced it's not a big deal like just fucking leave uh there's different rules on like yeah. how severe that is for for different people and different genders but generally speaking it is a much more equal situation it is much more of like hey i got you pregnant let's see this through and all right i'm done i'm gonna go <laughs> get somebody else pregnant and uh later i do like how he says that you know there's an explanation like they're doing a thing 
Like they are pairing in a sensible way. They have a community that's, you know, collectively looking out for the offspring that results and there are systems in place, but then the dumbass Europeans come in studying it and they're like, well, gee, it just looks like they're just doing adultery the whole time. Or they're just like, <laughs> they have a, you know, wives in common and they, they had no idea what was happening. Yeah. They were applying this really narrow, like usually Christian lens to things and, and they were scandalized by it when in reality, like this was just the way they had things structured. Like I thought it was cool. Like they, they all, because like that was a pretty like transient kind of marriage. Like they definitely still didn't have like independent, like family households. They were still living with each other. It was very like communistic in that sense. But like women like had the house as their domain and were very well respected. Uh, I love this one quote of, uh, <laughs> they're talking about the, the Iroquois and like, basically it's like, guys, don't be fucking idiots. Um, <laughs> Uh, no matter how many children or whatever goods he might have in the house, he might at any time be ordered to pick up his blanket and budge. And after <laughs> such orders, it would not be healthful for him to attempt to disobey. <laughs> Fuck around and find out. out. <laughs> or we're going to kick your butt. <laughs> you, you should tell, I, need, I want to tell somebody this. Take your blanket and budge. <laughs> Take your blanket and budge. Oh my gosh. I'm going to tell Kyle that later. Uh, it's like you're taking over the bed. Actually, that's me. I'm the bed hog. In that same passage, it mentions the women who hold this esteemed uh, position in society. It said they did not hesitate when occasion required to knock off the horns, as it was technically called, from the head of a chief and send them back to the ranks of the warriors. Now, do they mean that metaphorically, like just take them down a notch? Or do they mean they're cutting off a penis? Oh, uh, I thought they were just okay. demoting him. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Maybe I was just reading too much into that. That's, that the, is, te- the technically was funny to me. I was like, wait, is that like a procedure? Yeah. Those uh, quotation marks become way more ominous if that's what they I mean. know, right? <laughs> Get but, uh, knock off the horns. But yeah, in the pairing family, you have, uh, I guess it should be step back and say that the previous iterations, all of these are really gender equal, seemingly. The stage of civilization that he was talking about for both consanguine and, and Punaluan are both savagery. Oh, very rude, but it just means that they're struggling to get by. They're they're just providing the basic. And, and when you get into the pairing family, you're in the upper stages of savagery, but you are still really, um, everyone is fully engaged in trying to provide enough for uh, the tribe, the, yeah, the whole tribe to, con- you know, to get by. So there's what you were saying of, of men and women having kind of equal roles, or I guess he p- puts it later as being masters of their domain. Yeah. Like they're not necessarily doing the same things at this stage. The men are kind of doing more of the hunting in this stage, but they are still equally respected. Like the men are the hunters and the women are the rulers of the house. And that actually means something here. Like not like today. <laughs> right. It's, it's good. And it's in this communistic household, not in like your own household where you're walled off from everyone else and no one knows what you're doing. Like, congrats, you cleaned. I can't see that. Right. <laughs> you better post it. You are doing something for society by taking care of your household because your household is with everybody else. Mm-hmm. So you're taking mm-hmm. care of your kids, everybody else's kids. You're feeding, you know, your family, everybody else's family. Everything is, is communal in that way. And so it's a, 
socially valued thing that women are doing. Just like on, you know, men, they're not just bringing food back home for their family and everyone else is like, I don't care that you did that. Like, (laughs) whatever. It's for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot more respect on both sides, even though they are different domains. He has this quote that's here uh, that I liked. He's kind of talking about how they had to do all this work, you know, and say, yeah, you know, maybe we look at them and say, oh, this is very overburdened for women to have to do. I said, among peoples where the women have to work far harder than we think suitable, there's often much more real respect for women than among our Europeans. The lady of civilization surrounded by false homage and estranged from all real work has an infinitely lower social position than the hardworking woman of barbarism who is regarded among her people as a real lady. Lady Frauer versus Frau Mistress, and who was also a lady in character. Yeah, yeah. I think that sums it up very nicely of like, yeah, they had to get their hands dirty, but like, dude, they got to be real people. We'll see later. They got to vote and like have an equal say in things. Like there was real power there. I, I like the little note about like, you get the idea of like Saturnalia or these kind of like hedonistic festivals of just fucking... <laughs> And that's kind of like a reverting to the old ways of things. Like, everybody fucks everybody. Like, let's go. Y'all remember we used to do this? Crazy, right? (laughs) We're just like animals. (laughs) I mean, you know, it it does make sense. I do think it's funny. Philosophers always muse, like, how do we get these various religions and and traditions and stuff? And it's like, well, yeah, you know, we probably made them up or something along the way. Or, you know, someone had to come up with a reason for this being or you know, design it. And then you have to backward engineer that from the other side of it. It's like, well, how do we get this religious tradition? It's like, well, maybe it stems from when we used to everyone bang. I don't know. (laughs) You just had like horny Greg and the tribe was like, Hey, you guys remember this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There is an interesting note here about the transitional stage between kind of the group marriages and the pairing uh, as being expressed in these, the rituals people would have to do of either like working for temples as kind of sex workers or at some point he ties it to the right of first night sort of notion. And and in other instances, it's like just being allowed to be as promiscuous as you want in your youth. You know, I thought that was, I didn't, I didn't really know what to think of that. I was like, that's an interesting theory. I don't know if that actually plays out, but yeah, I I don't know. Um, I thought that was interesting too. Like he kind of places it in terms of like a woman, purchasing the right to either be chased or go get married or something like that of like, okay, like you get to go like hang out in the temple until you're ready to be married. It's like this weird, like kind of precursor to marriage, but the temple itself could be very horny. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting too. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. Uh, the, the right of first night is also nasty, uh, <laughs> but it's interesting to see that as like, a connection to the idea of, I mean, a dowry. Uh, I, I think like he, he says that these payments got less and less intense, I guess, <laughs> of like, all right, you don't have to fuck the whole town or, okay, you don't have to fuck the king. We're just going to like pay you with like some goats or whatever. Yeah. I guess it provides a good explanation for that stuff because otherwise it's kind of random. But anyway, it's not, it doesn't super drive the whole thing. It's, so. it's not that important in terms <laughs> of what we're talking about. <laughs> he talks about, um, this guy, Bakoven, maintaining that the transition from heterism, as he's calling it, or like more group marriage, to the pairing marriage was, and later monogamy, 
was brought about by women in saying that as the economic conditions changed, got more advanced, this must have felt worse for women and they wanted to change things. I didn't really understand what the reasoning there was. Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm not understanding, like, to me, it kind of reads as like an old school, like women don't like sex kind of thing of like women just want to be chased. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't read it that way. I don't think, I mean, maybe Bakoven would see it that way. I don't think Engels kind of lets on at all in that regard, but maybe women as the people through whom relations are traced and, you know, very much tribal leaders and everything see that this is not going to work many more generations in the future, appearing in these ways, because you're going to have to, you're quickly going to have to like, go get some more people from other tribes and merge and shit because you're out of folks. Okay. Okay. I just, I don't know. To me, it wasn't really clearly written. I don't think so either. Okay. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Someone smarter than us explain it. <laughs> anyway. I did like that he added that. Like from here on out, from once we get to the the pairing stage, the pairing stage is the pinnacle of natural selection, genetics sort of drive toward monogamous pairs. Because like you are you are seeing this happen of like that baby's fucked up. Okay, <laughs> moving yeah. on. This was the best that humans could do just on their own, figuring out how they should ar- arrange relations. Everything from this point on is not going to be driven biologically, uh, in terms of trying to avoid messed up genetics uh everything from this point on is going to be driven by social factors yeah and this is where we get to talking more specifically about the advances in in production in terms of domestication um and like instead of struggling every day and hunting you now have a steady food source um and he talks about like okay who who gets this stuff how are we dividing this stuff uh and originally it was all held in common yeah it was Specifically, everything was owned by who made it and who used it. Uh, Men and women owned different things. Women owned the implements of communal housekeeping and everything involved in that domestic sphere of which they were masters. Uh, While men owned everything to do with hunting and everything else in that regard. And this is interesting because then it gets into like the inheritance of that then. Like you wanted to keep things within the gens like the within the family because like otherwise you would lose your shit (laughs) yeah but i think he's kind of keen to point out that initially that doesn't matter too much because there's not a lot of shit to pass down yeah once you get though into herds once you get into agriculture and livestock that's when inheritance becomes much more important herds lead to more of an interest in private ownership and eventually leads to the father right or paternal inheritance Yeah, that's the crucial turning point here. The development of pastoralism, of being able to herd animals, basically, long story short, part of the Neolithic Revolution, kind of the cutting edge of that, the development of agriculture. It's way less effort to produce way more food compared to hunter-gathering. And so you end up with surpluses, which changes the social relations. Now, since people can produce more food than they consume... Before it was net zero. It was just, if he ha- if another person joins your tribe, they're going to be helpful because they can produce food, but they're also going to eat that food. So <laughs> it doesn't help that much. Exactly. Yeah. Now that you can produce more food per person than you need, 
people are valuable. And pretty much immediately, they become valuable as slaves. Yes. Like that, the connection between that to me was crazy. Oh my gosh. If just like, as soon as we had a surplus, we're like, you know what we should do? <laughs> just start enslaving people. Yeah. Ugh. And, you know, crucially, it is a different type of slavery. It's more temporary and all that, but it's still slavery sucks. The sphere of the man of hunting now becomes guiding herds. His sphere of, like, the tools used for that and the livestock themselves and the people that they now enslave to help him with that, that's all in his domain. And now it's not just enough to get him by, but it's more. Yeah, in comparison with women who still have just the implements of the house. They still did a lot, don't get me wrong. Like, it was fucking shit was hard. (laughs) But in terms of inheritance, it became much more important what happened to the guy's stuff. Yeah. And so this becomes a big contradiction. Kind of in, in classic Marx and Engels style, he spells out this tension in society that ends up resolving itself in this dialectic sort of way. Previously, things would go to like his closest male relative that was not a son. So like his brother or his brother's kids, because those were so much more valuable, it behooved him to like change that tradition and make it more about paternal inheritance. And if you think about it, it really makes a lot of sense because like, okay, for moving to paternal inheritance, who's the baby daddy is becomes so much more important because that baby is going to inherit a lot of shit. So now we are going to introduce strict monogamy for women because we need to know whose baby is that. It's crazy. Like, that's a crazy thing to think about. Like, really, a fucking cow is why, like, we're sex shaming women all the time. Yep. (laughs) Because of cows. Thanks, cows. So, yeah, he says, you know, in proportion as wealth increased, it made the man's position in the family more important than the women's. And on the other hand, created an impulse to exploit this strengthened position in order to overthrow in favor of his children, the traditional order of inheritance. This, however, was impossible so long as descent was reckoned according to mother right. Mother right, therefore, had to be overthrown. Had had to go. (laughs) And overthrown it was. Uh, I like this quote, too. The overthrow of mother right was the world historical defeat of the female sex. Sorry, y'all played a good game. You lost this one. It was the Battle Uh, of Hoth for (laughs) women everywhere. Uh, the man took command in the home also. The woman was degraded and reduced to servitude. She became the slave of his lust, ew, and a mere instrument for the production of children. This degraded the position of woman, uh, of the woman, especially conspicuous among the Greek, blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, you can just see from this time period that like shit gets worse for women here. Yeah. And this is specifically talking about like just the inheritance part of it, really. Uh, it's not yet getting into the super strict monogamy Part. like that is also going to play a role in terms of ensuring paternity. Uh, but this is just talking about like how they trace inheritance. And basically the men just argue, Hey, excuse me, we make all the valuable things. It should be inherited based on us. Uh, when Marx is talking about the origin of the, the meaning of the word family. Oh my God. This one was nasty guys. Family values. We I don't know about that. Family. So apparently it comes from the Roman, or I guess the Latin, famulus, which means domestic slave. Very nice. Uh, Because your familia would count not just your, you know, your wife, your kids, whatever. It would also count the number of slaves you own. Cool. Ah, yeah. 
It's like when your workplace says they're a family. <laughs> they mean it. <laughs> In the Roman sense. <laughs> we own you. <laughs> yeah. Gross. As late as the time of Gaius. I don't know when Gaius was around, but probably not. In the 1800s, but still. <laughs> Just chilling. Id est patrimonium, family that is the patrimony, the inheritance was bequeathed by will. The term was invented by the Romans to denote a new social organism whose head ruled over wife and children and a number of slaves and was invested under Roman paternal power with rights of life and death over them all. Woof. Ugh. Not great. I like Marx's take on this, um... The modern family contains in germ not only slavery, servitus, but also serfdom, since from the beginning it is related to agricultural services. It contains in miniature all the contradictions which later extend throughout society and its state. Totally, yeah. You've got the, the man owning the means of production. You've got the women who are just subjugated to it. Um, it goes on to describe how like you have just unconditional power given to the husband. Like he can straight up just murder her. And like, that's his right. Yeah. And that's where you really start to see the quick transition into strict monogamy of this, just like complete imperator pater familias sort of thing of being completely in charge here. He just gives some, um, some examples of how this plays out in different, uh, family structures and Southern Slavic families in Russia yeah, amongst the Germans, like it's just it's examples. It's fine. Yeah, they're interesting, uh, and and there are still some areas where women do have a little bit because we are in that transitional stage. So um, you have like family council structures. You know, you have like assemblies where women can like have a say in things. Uh, but in general, from here on out, ain't gonna be great for for the women folk. Yeah, I did like kind of where they were talking about that. It wasn't you know it had vestiges of this previous Jen's model of, of council and stuff of property relations being kind of communally administered, you know, and some of these kind of being a little more democratic uh, in terms of, you know, they basically have these big family meetings and decide things. Yeah. I was picturing some game of Thrones shit in this section. <laughs> Cause especially they talk about like the, the great hall and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It sounds kind of cool, but obviously <laughs> probably also distressing. Yeah, sounds bad. Uh, it, before he gets on to the, really the monogamous family section, he does make fun of people who can't understand the uh, alternative forms of marriage, of uh, polygyny and polyandry, uh, and saying, guys, like, you couldn't just universally do this if you just had um, widespread of either one. You'd run out of people. Yeah, like, okay, if you had everyone in your society what had multiple wives, what are the um, other dudes going to do? The ones who are left out. And vice versa. What are, what are the women who are left out of polyandry going to do? Like, not everyone can find enough people. Yeah, because our society skews roughly, you know, 50-50 in that sense. Like, that's just a mathematical impossibility. And I think in this section, he makes fun of McClellan again for something. He does. He fucking hates that guy. You you moron. But he says, essentially, these sorts of marriage patterns are restricted to elites. Uh, People who have enough, you know, who do well enough in the cattle trade or whatever it is. They can do it. They can afford it. And everyone else is pretty much in monogamy. Because there's just not enough people to go around (laughs) for that. Getting into the monogamous family. Everybody's favorite. 
It's it's not even trendy anymore. Come on. <laughs> You're not even poly? What the hell? <laughs> I was, I was like, this. we can say this for the end or something, but I was really curious, like, what the hell would, would Engels make of, like, the large uptick of interest in, in polyamorous relationships now, you know? I would think he would see it as, this is just a fucking cold take on it. I don't know. I'd <laughs> shot in the dark. But I would think he would see it as a, a novelty, but not a historic force. Because by and large, people who are doing that are A, in the Imperial core, and B, in most cases, not even the oppressed. I feel, okay, this is actually just an impression of mine. Maybe it's biased, but they, they don't seem to be of the oppressed classes of uh, people. Like they seem to be a little bit more well-off people who are engaging in that, or at least not like working three jobs or something. Like, just think about like the idea of having time and energy to go on multiple dates with different people. I'm like, I'm fucking exhausted just thinking about it. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so again, yeah, you, you have know, to have some free time you enjoy <laughs> and then to yourself. talk about your feelings with all those different people and negotiate jealousy with all those. Like that sounds like a lot of fucking work. Enjoy it. If that's your bag, but yeah. like, that sounds like a whole ass job. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like do your thing. I just think that. Engels would spend way more, t- you know, he would come back after like a year having, having studied the thing in detail and just hung out with poly couples, I guess, all the time, <laughs> throuples and everything else. He's like, I'm in four polycules. This is what I found out. Because he was he kind really, of a bon vivant sort of fellow. Yeah, he would be into that. <laughs> but he's like, here's the economics of it. Like, no one's trying to separate themselves from the system or using this as a way to challenge property relations. Like, they're all still doing their jobs and and nothing's changing on that front. They all have separate accounts. Maybe people do it differently, but like, well, there is, there is kind of terms for that. And those have changed. So if you used to have like a primary partner, but that felt too hierarchical. And so people switched it to like a nesting partner, but like everyone still knows what that means. It's like, that's the person you live with. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> like by nature, that is because of our property relations, probably a little more important to you because if you break up with them, guess what? You're out on the fucking street. Like, yeah. I think that's in, like property relations are still absolutely affecting marriage structures. Yeah, that is interesting. So I don't know. That's I think where he would come at it first is saying like, okay, well, what do y'all do in this way? You know? Yeah. Like I think if you truly wanted a non-hierarchical poly situation, I think some, you'd also some have to start econ- a commune. You'd have to start a commune, which in these days can quickly turn into a cult. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, we're just talking about doing a sex cult. We're just, yeah, this um, is a sex cult. Uh, <laughs> but again, not to throw shade, like... No, no, don't no have not to, at all. Everything in your life doesn't have to be revolutionary. Like You can just enjoy shit, too. Yeah, dude, uh, Unless you're the chosen few. If you are eating meat and getting buff, <laughs> eating raw meat and getting buff... That. Yeah, you need to devote yourself. Remember, the true revolutionary is already dead. 100%. Save me. That's not Save us. Save me, meat but. buff man. <laughs> That's not us, and that doesn't have to be you. But if it is, you know. But if it is, God's please. please, save us all. Anyway, monogamy, what's up with this? Essentially, it's obviously getting stricter, cracking down, in order to enforce property rights to legitimate children of the of the male who is passing it down his his uh, inheritance, uh, divorce, infidelity. These things are only tolerated on the male end. Like only men can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the laundry list of how the Greeks are mean to women. So enjoy that. Yeah. I 
did think it was interesting. You know, he kind of elaborates and just says, yeah, they, they suck. Here's what they're doing. <laughs> uh, I did think it was interesting, the discussion of slavery's role in this. The discussion of slavery as being in, integral to this of uh, specifically like its its role in letting and, and men being feeling free to lock down women and saying like you have to be monogamous but then having their own outlet so it says uh, it is the existence of slavery side by side with monogamy and the presence of young beautiful slaves belonging unreservedly to the man that stamps mm-hmm. monogamy from the very beginning with specific character of monogamy for the woman only but not for the man that's the character angles throwing some shade here that's the character it still has today absolutely yeah and he kind of puts this uh, parallel out there historically looking at Sparta and saying, Sparta, actually, their marriage relations were a little more equal. Sure, you could, um, you know, maybe if you were kind of a sickly baby, you'd be left out to die of you know, exposure because, you know, you weren't going to be a good warrior or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not the best life in general. You're always training for warfare. But when we're gender equal, it kind of it comes across as kind of swinging, you know. It was like, if someone's wife digs this dude, you could just like, hey, you want to, y'all want to do a thing? Yeah. Or like, if you guys aren't having luck having a kid, be like, hey, you want to go find someone that can uh, knock you up? That's cool. It's like, (laughs) yeah, the the big crime would be like secretly messing around, but everything else is like, fine. Uh, And he attributes this to a, not attributes it wholeheartedly, but he's like, part of this is they didn't have slaves in the household. So in Sparta, they did have a lot of slaves. They were called helots, um, but they were agricultural slaves in like the fields. And, and this is one of the reasons that Sparta was such a militarized society was because they trained super hard. Uh, okay. Like why does, why does America have police? It's because of slave patrols. It's the same thing in Sparta. They trained so hard to be a warrior society so they could go down and, and put down helot revolts mm-hmm. whenever they happened. Okay. Uh, but okay. that was in the countryside further away honestly it was like too expensive of an uber ride to get out there to get it on with one of the slaves out there so yeah yeah it's like much much. more convenient yeah yeah so you would just like see if your friend had someone you were interested in and just talk to him about it and that you you just swing it's fine yeah yeah whereas in contrast you have like the ionians and athens like much less like women are completely sequestered from men's activities. They like only hang out with other women unless they are, you know, having, having those relations. That was like a, like a dystopian, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, get out or some sort of a 24, you know, yeah, it's a real like handmaid's tale situation. Just, yeah. Locked away completely in a different part of that, like upstairs and like the back area you had guard dogs and shit. Guard like, eunuchs too. Guard eunuchs, insane, dude. Like that's that's for real. Some hamage. The dog shit. he talked about, I read about that. It was it's like <laughs> this extinct dog breed. Molossian dogs. It, we have it from the ancient sources, you know, descriptions of it and stuff. It's supposed to be like super fierce and cool, but we don't, you know, they don't exist anymore. But they look cute. Like there's a, a statue of one on the main. Are they cute? Show me a pic. Here, I'll pull it up. All right, let's see. British Museum. Whose dog do they steal? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that is a dumb faced dog wow like, hey don't go to the women they're, they're not yours not your ladies paws <laughs> off paws off <laughs> he's really cute he doesn't even look fierce i mean he looks like swole like he's got muscles for sure yeah but he looks like he could be nice you know he looks like he could be you walk I bet in he likes a good treat the, the trick is okay to stop by like the 
the preserved meats vendor mm-hmm. before you go and try to hook up with somebody's harem totally. wives. You can befriend this dog. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, there is a brief little moment of uh, hating on gays here, so just just watch out for that. Is there? Which part? Oh, he says the abominable practice of sodomy, uh, calling it degrading. So Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the HTML one, it's different. And I read the link that they had on there because I was like, oh, man, fuck. Why did he do this? <laughs> that sucks. In, 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 the, in the HTML one, it says that the men who would have been ashamed to show any love for their wives amuse themselves by all sorts of love affairs with the hetairi, the like um, sex workers. Uh, but this degradation of the women was avenged on the men and degraded them also till they fell into the abominable practice of pederasty. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's then, crazy that that's like the translation. Yeah. The link kind of explains it further in the HTML version. It's this article in the International Socialist Review. And sure, yeah, they do want to clear angles of his name because he's a socialist. But they do, they kind of spell out the different translations in the versions. It says, well, Engels wrote in German was something in German. Uh, the volume 26 of the Marx Engels Collected Works, published in 1990, translates the phrase as the perversion of boy love. A better translation would be repugnant boy love. That is much more clear. Okay, great. The interpretation is strengthened by that reference to Ganymede, in which the god Zeus falls in love with and kidnaps a beautiful young boy. Again, the issue is child abuse. So yeah, like that's the yeah. Like we're not into that. Okay, great. That's fine to to call that bad. So good. I was wondering if that. I was like, but the one I was originally reading on the HTML had that one. So I was like, what's next? Now that we cleared up that. Yeah, <laughs> we've got to go to bat for angles here. So so he kind of spells out that this sort of focus on property rights as being the root of why we decide to, you know, lock down and, and only pair one-on-one officially anyway as being essentially a perversion necessary to uh, fuel this, this drive to private property. In a way, to me, just as, you know, anti-human of a process that nevertheless shapes our lives and everything as like corporations and stuff that are psychopathically driven toward profit of, you know, yeah, the economic system demands that we change everything about our ordinary human lives to do this. Uh, He says, you know, this is the origin of monogamy as far as we can trace it back among the most civilized and highly developed people of antiquity. It's not in any way the fruit of individual sex love with which it had nothing whatever to do. Marriages remained as before marriages convenience. It was the first form of the family to be based not on natural, but on economic conditions on the victory of private property over primitive natural communal property yeah i thought that's really interesting uh, later there's a whole section about like kind of the idea of romantic love and how that becomes more important and only for certain people but it is really fascinating to see that as a function of you know marriage such a basic thing i think for a lot of people sex a super basic thing <laughs> being determined by the economy yeah You will not learn that one in school. No one will teach you that. It's not believed in our society to be the case. And and, in a lot of ways, it's not. Like, there's a lot of people that don't have anything to pass down. You know, it it is something we've inherited because of that cause. But it's not something that we experience in our lives. I mean, the vast majority of us don't think, oh, this person would be good good or not good to pass down 
stuff to, <laughs> you know, their offspring. It's not like in, you know, those days when you were, you know, or, or elites were talking about like dynasties and shit like that. And sure, there are some people that are still doing that, but it's just not as prevalent. Well, okay. What's interesting, I mean, this is maybe skipping ahead a little bit, but okay. walk with me. <laughs> <laughs> skip with you. So, yes, skip on over a few pages in this reading. What's interesting is that he's talking about the the emergence of of what he calls sex love, which I'm going to call romantic love. Just so I, don't I like say sex, sex love. So it's it's a hilarious term. <laughs> sex love is so funny to me. Like I mean, you it's, can tell that's a German, German. translation yep. for sure. Like that's just like a two words mashed together. You're like what do we do? Today. Uh, he just wrote. He literally wrote two words here. I don't put a hyphen. It's fine. <laughs> that's fine. That's German. <laughs> So he talks about the the kind of origins of it, and we don't really get to that as a theme in like literature or culture or anything until like the Middle Ages, and it's all about adultery. It's all about like <laughs> horny, just what we would think of as chaste love, but like it's like fucking what's her name? It's not Gwendolyn, Guinevere or whatever. Guinevere, yeah. And Guinevere and Lancelot fucking mm-hmm. sneaking around behind King Arthur's back. Like, that's yeah. the origin of, like, the classic romance tale. I love it. Because he's like, yeah, it comes from monogamous marriage, but, like, outside, specifically <laughs> outside of it. And once you get that set up, uh, then it's like, yeah, people are into each other romantically, but, you know, they're, they're drawn. But the, the reason they're drawn in this way and stuff and have these desires is because they're unfulfilled. Before that, you just have desires and you're just like, well, okay, let's. Let's go do the Let's thing. Let's go do that. Let's go take care of that problem. And you might have, you I know, see that guy, I'm going to go do that guy. You still have some bad poetry of like, I like this one chick, but she doesn't want to hook up with me or something. You know, okay, <laughs> that, fine. But you don't have like this drawn out, like people drawn to each other and expressing their love mm-hmm. and stuff. It's not as super important. Like no one wants to hear it if you're into the person you're into and it's okay. Not interesting. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> Ugh, your father set you up with a nobleman and you're into him? Boring. Yeah. And so it's just, that's not a popular thing at all. It's like the, the <laughs> notion of this comes from that, those adulterous affairs or whatever. Like you said, yeah, Lancelot and stuff. Um, yeah. I think that's so interesting. Like that. And, and what's interesting is that that kind that trend kind of continues where like you have nobles as whatever the upper class is going forward so you know kings and then bourgeois and whatever those those people continue to marry to uh, influence inheritance and and to build their wealth and then the proletarians are just like fucking i like the baker she likes me let, let's hook up like they're much more like able to express like what we would consider as <laughs> sex love romantic love and what's interesting though is my theory presupposes that we are just all peasants now <laughs> Oops, all peasants. Oops, all peasants. Because most of us, and there's definitely some cultures where arranged marriages are are, are around, um, but most of us are marrying for a romantic love if we're interested in marriage. So we are all now the the fucking peasants because we don't have to worry about inheritance. He talks about this at some point, um, uh, but we're still we've jumped ahead. Um, I, I I don't think there was that much. There's some funny jokes about Germans versus French. <laughs> <laughs> which oh. I enjoyed. You're going to skip the Germans versus French joke. That's hilarious. <laughs> okay, let's talk about that real quick. Put a pin in we're all peasants. We're coming back to we're all peasants. First off, let's talk about Germans versus French. Now, you might be German if you're scared of your wife. <laughs> yeah, I, I was wondering what the worst fate for the French was. 
I don't know. He says, uh, you know, not all marriages turn out thus. Nobody knows better than the German Philistine who can no more assert his rule in the home than he can in the state <laughs> and whose wife with every right wears the trousers he is unworthy of. He is whipped, dude. Don't mess with that frow. <laughs> wow. But then it says he considers himself far above his French companion in misfortune. Um, I think it's because he's saying the French people sleep around and, and maybe the French people get the horns knocked off. Mm, okay. Yeah. He just said something much worse happens to the French. He doesn't elaborate. That's my guess. I don't know. If, I, I, I think later he talks about French people again and it seems like that's what he's trying to say. But I don't know. But it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, here we go. In, in another German-French comparison. In the German, the young man gets the girl. In the French, the husband gets the horns. Oh, like punished? Like he's, he's... I think so, yeah. Where they're saying that the French are, are horrified by the dullness of a German novel as the German Philistine is by the immorality of the French. Oh. So, sounds like French people fuck, but there's lots of risks involved with that. Whereas the Germans might have a more stable situation, but it's boring. <laughs> oh, he did say something to this effect of like the Protestants and the Catholics and stuff too. This is about adultery here or is this something else? Hold on. I don't know. The passage that I had selected here was in Catholic countries, the parents as before procure a suitable wife for their young bourgeois son. The consequence is, of course, the fullest development of the contradiction inherent in monogamy. The husband abandons himself to heterism and the wife to adultery. Probably the only reason why the Catholic Church abolished divorce <laughs> was because it convinced himself that there was no more cure for adultery than there is for death. That's so fucking funny. <laughs> and then in Protestant countries, on the other hand, the rules the son of a bourgeois family is allowed to choose a wife of his own class with more or less freedom. As there's a certain element of love in the marriage as indeed in accordance with Protestant hypocrisy is always assumed for decency's sake. Here, the husband's heterism is a more sleepy kind of business, and adultery by the wife <laughs> is less the rule. But since, in every kind of marriage, people remain what they were before, and since the bourgeois of Protestant countries are mostly Philistines, all that this Protestant monogamy achieves, taking the average of the best cases, is a conjugal partnership of leaden boredom known as domestic bliss. Okay, so this makes this sheds some light on the German-French dichotomy. So you got Germans, which are mostly Protestant, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. in this case. I guess you've got Catholic Germans, too. but It depends, um, yeah, which region. But, like Bavaria, very Catholic. But Okay, okay. Uh, but it sounds like they're more in that first one of, all right, or in the second one, where they're like, okay, we're going to get married. We like each other. Uh, but, like, I might cheat, you might cheat, but it's like, it's cool. Like, for the most part, they like each other. Whereas French people are like, we don't fucking give a shit. Like, I'm going to go have an affair. You're going to go have an affair. We both know what this is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Uh, in this vein, before we get, before we jump back over to sex, love, and the and the peasants. Sex, love, and peasants. It's like <laughs> sex, drugs, and love. rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> Two completely different directions for that. <laughs> There are two kinds of households. One has sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> One has eat, pray, eat, la live, laugh, love. Or live, eat, laugh, pray, love. eat, pray, love, eat, live, laugh, that's love. That's different. That's different. What are the different messages there? Well, Eat, Pray, Love is the book uh, with with that got into a movie with Julia Roberts. It's about like finding yourself. Oh, I thought it was like the same sort of sign, but maybe in your kitchen. No, no, no. This is this is like a a woman like is just traveling the world and doing cool shit. Yeah, well, that's better. Okay. Yeah, I think it's better. <laughs> I haven't read it or watched the movie, so who knows? 
Engels here in this sort of passage talking about monogamous marriage and everything uh, characterizes monogamous marriage as similar to uh, the class structure evolution. So, you know, we were talking about, you know, barbarism to savagery to barbarism, whatever. And if you zoom out and look at, you know, slave societies, feudal societies, uh, capitalist societies, you know, this sort of evolution as well, there's always like an advancement in the productive forces and things. And to some extent, the social relations, but with like steps back too. So like problems that you have to fix. And he kind of puts marriage in that same category. Uh, He says monogamous marriage was a great historical step forward. Nevertheless, together with slavery and private wealth, it opens the period that has lasted until today in which every step forward is also a relatively a step backward in which prosperity and development for some is one through the misery and frustration of others. Yeah, I, I think it makes for a great microcosm. Like, I mean, if you're wondering, like, why the fuck are my listening to these people talk about like people banging people and marriage and all that <laughs> shit? Like, this is why it's a great study of not only is this thing affected by economics and changed its form due to economics, it also within itself is an example of power structures and how they affect real people. So like the idea of men coming to dominate women because they have the economic power, that's how it works in a class structure as well. Like we are being dominated by people because they have the means of production on a larger scale. Engels explicitly ties these together here and does a good job later. I think he, he kind of drops it and goes with more of the um, origins of the state stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just doesn't really go back to the marriage thing at the very end and a little bit of a weakness in my opinion of the conclusion. But initially when he's talking about marriage and stuff, he does a good job of tying that into the economics of it and being very intersectional of like this. is He's, he's constantly like, if we're ever going to defeat capitalism, if we're ever going to, you know, defeat sexism. These have to be, we have to fight these two things together. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's, he's talking about the, the division of labor. I mean, this is obviously in the 1800s. So uh, the first division of labor is that between men and women for the propagation of children. And then he adds the first class opposition that appears in history coincides with the development of the antagonism between man and woman in monogamous marriage. So again, the man has that productive power. He's going to use that to exploit people. In this case, people as women. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and it also begets this, like he, he kind of puts out this side by side of, uh, wage labor and slave labor. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to, you know, free sex workers and sex slaves, both enjoyed by the ruling class, the ruling gender bourgeois men, while they themselves are condemning that that's a thing and the women that you know, they prey upon in those situations like, Oh, that's bad. You know, oh, no prostitution is bad or whatever, you know, but they're the ones that are doing it. Not necessarily them <laughs> personally, but you know, their, their class, their gender or what have you. If you want to understand the patriarchy, like you have to look at these like really base origins of capitalism. Yeah. Back to peasants real quick. <laughs> yeah. So, we're talking about like, you know, he's saying, Romantic love, obviously outside of the confines of marriage for bourgeois people with property, because it's arranged. I mean, it's all planned. It's like, you're going to marry this person because this is our house and you have to, you know, pass that on correctly. 
Yeah, and and it's interesting. Like I'm I'm thinking of kind of like what I've learned about the Black Death and the rise of the merchant class. Like they definitely had those those thoughts as well of like, hey, like I want to make sure that my children marry into another rich family. So like it it holds on for a while. It's not necessarily just like a king or something that has to worry about this or nobles. It it does move on into merchants and stuff later. That is true. It's not like a social class sort of thing necessarily or titles or anything like that, but they do have a lot of wealth. Yeah, it's an economic uh, incentive for sure. And so because that's the economic incentive, in contrast, you have the proletariats, you know, the poor people, they don't have to worry about that. They don't have shit to inherit. They're like, fucking, I like you, like me, like, let's do this, you know? <laughs> Basically, because there's not that incentive, uh, and also, I like this point, the law costs money. Like, I'm not about to fucking sue somebody for, for like, this divorce. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you could just dissolve marriages pretty easily when you're in the lower classes. Um, you can just separate, like, marriages. It's not necessarily more casual, but it, it is just, like, I mean, I would say a little more, more equal. Um, and you, and he also compares that to like in his modern times or his contemporary time of now that you have women going out into the workforce, like it can make her the breadwinner of the family. So you really don't have any like reason for having male supremacy in the household. Yeah. They're way more equal about it. In fact, I like the way he puts it. He says in short, proletarian marriage is monogamous in the etymological sense of the word, but not at all in its historic <laughs> sense. Yeah, that's because he threw so much shade at that of like, uh, I like this too. Uh, two negatives make an affirmative. So in matrimonial mor- morality, two prostitutions pass for a virtue. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, they are more monogamous in practice, basically. They're less likely to step out because they actually chose each other and they are more equal. Yeah. They're not selling themselves into into the relationship. Like it's it's genuine. But they are selling themselves in the marketplace. I love this next section talking about uh, the the labor contract. And, and you can totally use this as the marriage contract, too. Uh, so you could say, okay, well, you know, with a marriage contract, you're, you're entering into it uh, by both partners. So you really can't complain if something doesn't go your way. Yeah, the legalists will just say, ooh, right to contract. Clearly, you knew what you're getting into, right? Yeah. But he's saying, hey they're not equal. Like they're, they're not in any (laughs) semblance of, of the word equal. Like they are compelled to make these kinds of agreements in marriage and uh, further in labor, you're fucking compelled to enter those kinds of contracts. So you don't die. So you don't go hungry on paper. It's a free, whatever contract. Sure. Mm -hmm. You can just leave. You don't like it. Why don't you, yeah. Why don't you just quit? But in practice, because of social relations, because of the economic situation, it's unequal enough as to be unfree. You're basically compelled into it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. I, I think that's a great way to tie in, again, the idea of marriage being kind of a, not even a metaphor, because it is directly related to capital, but a a study of, of capital. Yeah. He goes on to, to hammer in some points we've already talked about, so we're skipping around a little bit. <laughs> uh, he gets to this point of, again, he's calling for the liberation of, of the wife and the liberation of just women, saying that because they have been cloistered off into, instead of a communistic household where they are respected and, and you know, understood to be providing a service for the community, uh, they are, you know, siloed off into individual households and they are not 
you know, bringing in enough economic value. Um, so he is really pushing for women to like get into public industry and in turn freeing up the family structure as not maybe the way we run things economically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he goes on kind of to say, therefore, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, he kind of spells it out of the family as being the representation of class struggle in, in the real world. It's, he says, um, within the family, the, the man is the bourgeois and the wife represents the proletariat in the industrial world. The character of economic oppression burdening the proletariat is visible in all its sharpness. Only when all special legal privileges of the capitalist class have been abolished and complete legal equality of both classes is established. Uh, meaning like property requirements for voting and stuff, the democratic Republic equal like universal suffrage kind of, Uh, does not do away with the opposition of the two classes. On the contrary, it provides a clear field on which they can be fought out. So it's like a precursor, like it's, it's stage one. In the same way, the peculiar character of the supremacy of the husband over the wife in the modern family, the necessity of creating real social equality between them and the way to do it, will only be seen in the clear light of day when both possess legally complete equality of rights. So those equality of rights are like, a necessary precursor, but not like enough. It's not enough to just have, you know, equal rights for people. That will be the first condition. He says for the liberation of the wife is to bring the whole female sex back into the public industry. And that this in turn demands the abolition of the monogamous family as the economic unit of society. Yeah. I mean, I wish he went into more detail on this section. Cause this is the shit that I find interesting of, okay, like what is, what does that look like? Like, what do you mean by this? Like, I mean, we think about the time period here, like not everybody has like universal suffrage at this point. I mean, definitely not universal, but (laughs) not even like gender based suffrage is really the norm. And, you know, women are still so hemmed in by the law, you know, a lot of places don't have, uh, you know, no fault divorce. Uh, You know, there's just a lot of barriers, you know, you can't get a fucking you know, your own money, <laughs> you know, yeah. like everything literally belongs to your husband at that point or your closest male kin. Um, so he's saying like, Hey, to get even to kind of where we need to do be like, we need to get those things taken care of first. And then we can talk about like, okay, now that everyone's like here, <laughs> we can talk about how this whole thing is fucked up. I wonder because, you know, the next few sections, he's going to talk way more about the, you know, the the state and and the economics of certain places i'm wondering if he's thinking like to me it almost sounds like he concludes with like well you see how much our family structures have changed over time i've just outlined all of them they're going to necessarily change once we figure out a new economic system Mm. that's what i was wondering because you know you mentioned like he doesn't really pick this back up very much and i wish he would more because to me it, it kind of read like we were changing, you know, we, we changed to the mother right to the father right. We changed, you know, to monogamy from group and pair marriage due to economic circumstances. So I'm wondering if, like, I kind of wish he made that more clear of, like, which one's coming first. <laughs> you know, it's probably an implied thing. He does, when we get to the uh, pairing marriage, kind of say, this is as far as we got by natural forces. And then he says, at, at some point or another, he's kind of talking about... uh he, uh, to me, the way he characterizes civilization and kind of the steps beyond 
like one, once we step out of that barbarism stage or whatever and get for, you know, get more advances, he's like, it's almost a necessary evil type of thing. I'll be saying like, this is bad in a lot of ways. It leads to a lot of suffering, but it does increase our productive capacity and free us from the, and what he referred to in, you know, socialism, scientific and utopian is like humanity's childhood of like, we're, we're struggling to exist. We're getting better mastery over nature and being able to secure for ourselves existence alongside, you know, the, the terrible things we're unleashing. So it, it's, it's like a bad thing, but a good thing. It is improving us in a way. And then, yeah. And eventually once we ride that out and get the benefits of it, we can get rid of the shitty parts of it and end up with the mastery side where we can secure for ourselves, you know, post-scarcity, eco-balance, all the good shit. I mean, shit, dude, like the next page he gets into it, I'm realizing. <laughs> he's He talks about the, the coming social revolution will, will minimize anxiety about inheritance because it's like, fucking, we all own everything. <laughs> and, you know, the single family unit will, will go away because private housekeeping is transformed to this, like, social industry. Like, you just get a clean house because you're a person and you're alive. Congratulations. Uh, you're, you get childcare, you get education, like you get all the things. So society, it almost is not exactly, obviously, in terms of like sexual relations, but like in terms of community childcare, like that yeah. comes back. And, and he wonders then, like, do you, will that change how we view, you know, women's like sexual promiscuity or like, will we be less judgy about that basically? Will not that suffice to bring about the gradual growth of unconstrained sexual intercourse and with it a more tolerant public opinion in regard to a maiden's honor and a woman's shame? <laughs> really setting up the virgin horde dichotomy here. <laughs> He's not really getting that. Into. He's like, maybe <laughs> shit's going to change. I bet this stuff will change too. <laughs> Honestly, at the, at the end of this chapter, he does essentially say that. Uh, he says it's for the revolutionaries to decide. He's like, they're, they're going to build a brave new world and hopefully they do well. Uh, <laughs> I think it's interesting in this section, though, he's also talking kind of about sex work, too. So he's kind of saying there's a couple different directions of sex work disappearing and monogamy being like, you know, also men have to be monogamous now. Like, it's not just like go off and, and bang while women are monogamous and then. The other one was maybe it just kind of opens up more like the previous societies and stuff because you, you, you're not concerned with legitimacy and things like that. And like you were saying, it's communal childcare and everything. It kind of reverts back to that form. That's kind of what I was mentioning earlier with the notion of, you know, natural selection only got us this far. We had to do the weird ride on civilization for a little while to get good at stuff. But now we can go back to kind of our nat natural state of you know, hooking up and pairing, pairing marriages sort of thing. Cause that <laughs> works if you don't have to worry about property rights, which we don't anymore. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting because I mean, we're going to, we've decided to make this a two-parter. So we're going to get more into like specific structures and, and state structures and things like that. I do think there's a lot of benefits to some of these like earlier societies that I think we could regain through revolution. Uh, and obviously with that, you know, instead of being, oh, we're struggling every day, we're, we're just getting like fucking berries and deer and shit. It's instead we have so much production that now we can, we can chill. I do think that's a, an unstated strength here of his writing. It's like, um, 
you know, a movie that kind of leaves the ending ambiguous sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Of, he does a lot of work that seems extra that we don't give him credit for in the moment because it doesn't, we don't, we're not feeling the credit for it in the moment. It's a lot of work <laughs> to just slog through like, okay, yeah, these are the, the fucking Celts and the fucking Germans and the Scots and the everybody else, the fucking Welsh. <laughs> like, I don't care. Why, why am I seeing this? But he's kind of showing again and again, these societies like functioned and function well for a good period of their time, given their economic circumstances with these conditions. And nobody was pulling their hair out and nobody was like, and it really presents them in a positive light. They had a lot of democracy. They had a lot of equality. They were, you know, they had, they were pretty peaceful, you know, to the extent that they did have, you know, conflicts, they had mediation beforehand and all this, like, you talk about a liberal world order or whatever, you know, ours is a lot more <laughs> bloodthirsty and barbaric, to use his term, than theirs is. But he, he kind of says that and then doesn't really, you know, ham-fistedly say at the end, just like I said in these, you know, early societies, like <laughs> maybe we'll end up with something cool. Uh, he just kind of says, leave it up to the revolutionaries to figure it out. But when property relations change, you know, family relations will probably change and the state will probably change and... You know, leaves it up to you to be like, I wonder if it's going to go back to the primitive nice way. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a note, LOL, he's like, and then I drew the shruggy emoji, you know, like the, <laughs> yeah. not the emoji, I guess, but like the typed out one. <laughs> oh, yeah, the little, you left your arm here little, one with the slashes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, truly, like at the end of it, he's like, it'll be different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. To go back to kind of the monogamy sex work, disappearing sort of thing one last speculation he kind of enters is maybe if they are contradictions but inseparable maybe you know if if um prostitution if sex work were to disappear because of the abolition capitalism maybe monogamy would too you know maybe these are too tied and then he's like not necessarily i mean because we have this lovely german word invention i came up with sex love (laughs) <laughs> that will step in and people will just do that you know and the name of my new album sex, sex love. love it's not a bad one <laughs> i think it would do well yeah yeah he, he's saying like it, it's not impossible i'm not saying like hey we're we, we'll all have to fuck everybody else <laughs> <laughs> uh but it's it will be on truly equal footing that contract again will actually be a contract and you can leave it if things don't work out it is just gonna be a lot more equal in general yeah yeah i think so i thought this was interesting too he brings up kind of the the loosening of of respectability i guess in terms of the the you know brutal conquest of the new world (laughs) of saying a guy didn't really have to care if he like was honorable or not because he could just fucking fuck off to <laughs> to Mexico. He could go anywhere. He's like, I'm just going to get on a ship and fucking leave. And so like, it was, it was just a really easy thing to do. Sort of hearkening back, I guess, to not the, uh, so the firstborn sons couldn't do this, but everyone else in the medieval <laughs> chain of inheritance could fuck off and be a monk, fuck off and be a knight, mercenary, whatever, you know, all your extra guys could just go do things. And yeah, the open, I think the opening of those possibilities was kind of a challenge to them, you know, um, kind of a alternative that they didn't, that uh, these arranged marriages or whatever didn't really fit into, I guess. 
Yeah, like, uh, I think it's important to note that in all of these different kinds of marriage from, you know, way back to group marriage and up until, like, the, the colonization efforts, you are dealing with pretty limited locations. And we'll see that again and again in the other cultures we're going to take a look at. Uh, and because you're dealing with pretty limited locations, that necessarily dictates, like, who you can marry and, like, how you marry them and things like that. And so when you do start opening up to more world travel, like, that necessarily destabilizes, like, whatever the existing system of marriage is. Yeah. He has a convoluted way of putting it, but it was I thought an interesting observation about human rights yeah about like love and shit yeah yeah yeah. he was kind of saying like okay with most human rights on you know they are expressly on paper for everybody yeah you get the right to whatever good (laughs) awesome like comrade stalin says you know what is freedom to the man who's unemployed you know what is liberty to the homeless person You don't really have the means to enjoy it. Most human rights really only, although they're applied to everybody, only get enjoyed by the bourgeoisie. Yeah, I I think it's interesting. He makes like kind of a a Lutheran connection here or or a Reformation kind of connection of, you know, there's this idea of you're only responsible for your actions when you have complete freedom of will and you have a moral duty to resist all coercion. And so he, he... takes that and he's like how do you fucking explain arranged marriages then how do you explain like this becoming a legal contract in what ways are you responsible like you could refuse it i guess but this is i guess to continue this is that olden times continue yeah <laughs> to continue that christian analogy uh you could refuse to be uh converted to, uh, to to go you know and be baptized in christianity and everything else given that your entire society is that like not much of a choice. (laughs) You're probably not going to say, "Never mind, I'm going to go follow this other faith or whatever. Just like when you go in and do missionary work in some place to save souls. And you're like, well, they didn't freely choose to, you know, abandon their entire society and join Christianity. So they're going to hell. How does that work? Like, is that, that's a, that's a free choice. Yeah, so as this idea of, of free choice became more popular and as the idea of sex love became more popular, you got to this question of like, oh shit, maybe we should let people marry because they like each other. And that kind of shook up the, the, the marriage contract for a while of, okay, I guess now we have to do this. <laughs> yeah, but only I think only in a limited capacity. He argues that basically only the proletarians are the ones who are able to literally enjoy the freedom of free marriage in reality because they don't have those economic pressures. He says, basically, even if you open it up and say, okay, yeah, you know, society's not going to put you under pressure. You still have an economic pressure. Yeah. 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 So he kind of goes on to say full freedom of marriage can therefore only be generally established when the abolition of capitalist production and of the property relations created by it has removed all the accompanying economic considerations which still exert a powerful influence. So basically, once that's gone, then it's just sex love, man. It's just romance. It's just <laughs> who do you like? Who do you dig? Who is your, you know, shares your love language? All that. 
listen, I said earlier, we're all peasants, but like, there is still a degree to this. Like, you know, if you are in a certain class, and you bring home someone who is in a much lower class than you, mm-hmm. like there's probably going to be questions. And I'm sure that pressure gets higher and higher, the higher up you go in, in wealth. Yeah. Is there some sickening amounts of wealth out there? And there are dynasties. There are like, you know, probably listener, unless you're Unless you're part of our covert operations of recruiting the upper crust of American <laughs> society to be sleeper agents against the system. Uh, What's up? <laughs> Welcome. Glad you found the code word. <laughs> Unless you're part of that stratum, then you are probably like us. You have pretty much no interaction with the the wild <laughs> amounts of dynastic wealth that are out there. But you, mm-hmm. you probably read about mm-hmm. it or heard about it or something. It's just crazy. It's, it's, oh, yeah. If you're in Dallas, think about like the Crow family. Do you think someone from the Crow family can bring home like a minimum wage worker and their parents were like, that's cool? <laughs> no, but you know what they can do is go see that person on the side or hire a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Like those are the things that are allowed in terms of, of their relations. Yeah. So they, you know, again, they don't they don't have that freedom as a human and, you know, oh, boohoo for them. Like they don't have the freedom as human to just like act on those desires or whatever, but they totally have the means to get around it. Like, don't get us wrong. <laughs> don't, don't feel bad for these people. They'll get their dicks wet. <laughs> I mean, you should feel bad for them in a sense. I mean, they are robbed by their class position and they, they deserve to be humans too. But if they, I don't know, they feel so bad about it, man, join us, you know, like, yeah, right. Be a traitor. Yeah. Uh, maybe throw open the gates to that, you know, munitions plant that you have or the place where y'all make drone strike you know drones and everything give us some of those funnel, you know, maybe they fall off a truck or something we could do maybe some drones. i don't know <laughs> just saying yeah just the spitball in here uh he has one conclusion here where he kind of argues that rather than go towards you know men can fuck around women can fuck around polygyny and polyandry at the same time he says probably what we're going to see is more of a real genuine romantic love monogamy if we remove these economic things so his argument is a women were the driving force toward individual marriage pairing marriage b men when they did have the one instance where they were in the driver's seat for things they just went to monogamy not because they liked it because they could then force their wives via economic blackmail to tolerate them just going back to polygamous or not polygamous really, but like, uh, infidelities, everything else. Right. Uh, fucking around that's, that was their, you know, glowing contribution. Uh, so if you remove those economic <laughs> means, uh, you know, the, the weapon that they were using to force that, then women are probably going to steer a- as equals, be able to steer society back toward a romantic love driven pairing or gen or total sort of monogamy. One of the, one of this sort of one of those two maybe is what it make kind of reads like to me. Well, what it's interesting, he, it doesn't sound like it's going to be exactly what we think of when we think of monogamy of like, you're fucking together till you die. Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds like he's open to the idea of like, Hey, maybe if like, it ends when it ends you gotta go like you know like it's okay to break up like if you no longer feel things for each other or whatever it is like it seems like it is a more you know organic 
kind of, of pairing of like, this makes sense for us right now emotionally. And we're not having to, you know, like, honestly, I'm I, a lot of people in, in situations with divorce, especially in abusive marriages, like financial abuse is one of the biggest issues in, in that of you might, it, it's just, it's expensive to get divorced. It's expensive to figure out custody and things like that. Like you won't have those kinds of, of burdens on figuring out like, Hey, I want to leave this person. Yeah. You know, people moralize and stuff and say, oh, how could they cheapen marriage as much as they did or whatever. But I, man, I give my tip my hat hat off completely to <laughs> the Soviets with their postcard marriages. Like, oh, yeah, for <laughs> the divorce, you know, yeah, a postcard divorce, rather, uh, you know, postcard marriage is cute, <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, to the extent that maybe someone frivolously ended a marriage. Okay. Kind of sad. Sure. Sounds like you don't want to be in a marriage with that person. They sound kind of shitty. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that you can't stack up enough of those to convince me that whatever life that they saved with that, and they surely did, um, is not worth it. So, like, I'm always like, yes, like, make it as easy as you can, you know. Engels does uh, sort of say basically this thing about, like, things change, right? Says, you know, when the property relations part is gone. The features that it stamped onto monogamy are going to go to that. The supremacy of man, obviously throw that whole thing out. Yeah, no, we don't need that anymore. <laughs> and secondarily, uh, indissolubility. If only the marriage based on love is moral, then also only the marriage in which love continues. I mean, he's basically saying end it when you need to end it. Yeah. And I mean, that makes a logical sense, makes uh, an emotional sense. I mean, I think it's a, a good thing. It's just not what we believe, I think, as a society, really, mm-hmm. that he argues, you know, might change. And he kind of ends it uh, by saying, essentially, we can speculate all day, um, but these questions about what will marriage look like, which we we wish he would engage in a little more utopianism. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd love on. part two of this. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he kind of doesn't. He, again, leaves it open-ended and says, I told you what those guys did. It was kind of cool, right? Maybe. I mean, just saying, take inspiration. But, uh, if you, you know, ultimately it will be answered by a new generation. A generation of men who never in their lives have known what it is to buy a woman's surrender with money or any other social instrument of power. A generation of women who have never known what it is to give themselves to a man from any other considerations than real love or to refuse to give themselves to their lover for fear of the economic consequences. When these people are in the world, they will care precious little what anyone today thinks they ought to do. They will make their own practice and their own corresponding public opinion about the practice of each individual. And that'll be the end of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting like as someone who kind of came up into feminism before i got to communism like there were so many discussions and things of like oh it's just so hard to be a woman and be in the workplace it's hard to like have a family and all these things and like i just so many i would say probably all of the things (laughs) that women experience as you know what we would traditionally call sexism or the patriarchy just directly ties to how we organize our economic system of oh like even when you the most benign kind of shit of like oh well you don't want to divorce think of the kids why is that important because otherwise like that you are child care you and your partner are the child care we don't have child care socialized mm-hmm. that's all on you guys like 
every feature of this of of oppression can be traced to like these really basic systems of how we organize things. Yeah. And it, it's another layer to what Engel said earlier of uh, the family as kind of containing the oppressions that we now, it's, it's not just the family in, in its, in its gender dynamics, but it's also the family in this atomized separate cordoned off part of society where we're all on our islands on our own, having to be, you know, the rugged individualists and everything that that economists all want us to be is because we don't have communal childcare, communal healthcare, community, you know, communities in general, these old gens and the societies that they built up and, and cared for everybody and everything else. And yeah, sure. Materially, they didn't have that much, but I think Engels again, leaves open that possibility of like, can't we just, adopt that once we get rid of these, you know, the patriarchal system of doing things and, and the, the introduction. And he's very explicit, you know, when man starts dominating woman, when we start having this surplus that is passed down only from the male line, the father, right? That's when we start to have the oppression of class. And so if we're abolishing that, the original one, along with, you know, the class of a lot of, a lot of nasty shit. Yeah. Like essentially we can return. It's a hero's journey. We're returning with a boon. <laughs> like we've gone into the belly yeah. of the beast Oof, and we've emerged deep in that belly. Yeah. We're, I hope we're in the, uh, like intestinal tract or something. I want to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, no, that's probably like the bad ending is you get pooped at. Like the heroic ending is like you take a sword and you slice it open. Yeah. But, but yeah, <laughs> that ending, you just get, <laughs> He's good pooped. <laughs> All right. We're probably in the intestinal tract in that case. Yeah. I, I also, again, I, I think about, like, I saw this this really weird post, like, trying to com- compare, like, the rise of polyamory to, like, a rise of consumption culture of, like, oh, you know, you're just saying, I want this and I want this too, that kind of thing, which I think is, like, a really just not generous take, just a... <laughs> Just a rude thing to think about a group of people. They were just uh, uh, making like an instant gratification argument type of thing. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I, I see some of those ideas definitely in the place of like online dating. Like that's for sure a thing that goes on there of like, Oh, I can always find better. There's always more. Yeah, but, it can be. I don't think that people are going into it with it, but I'm sure I'm, I think that those worst impulses are fed by, yeah, companies that run that for sure. But because those companies are capitalists yeah. and they want you to spend more time on their app so they can learn more about you and sell you stuff. See surveillance capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> so if you took away the economic factors, again, like if you're actually trying to get to a system where if you all are, are polyamorous, you want to be in a non-hierarchical system, that seems to be like the thing people are really interested in of like, hey, I'm able to, you know, relate to this person without jealousy and like, you know, be able to work through our issues and stuff like that. And like the idea of like, Hey, it's cool. If like, you don't have a nesting partner or it's cool if you do. And like, it just becomes like those pressures again, get taken off. And there's, I don't know, there's probably less of a social pressure or what have you. I mean, there's gotta be less of a social pressure or whatever. If people aren't interested in like what you're going to pass down and stuff too. Like if there's no property relations involved, it's, way freer of a decision of like sure go go for whoever like or if you're not interested in marriage like 
that is no longer a who's going to take care of you when you're old. It's no longer a you don't you want kids. It's like I am like I'm kind of parent to all of the kids in the community. Like I help take care of the kids kind of thing. Yeah. I saw this TikTok that this guy was like talking to somebody and they're like, oh, you don't want kids, but who's going to take care of you when you're old? And like people like being around me, man. Like <laughs> I don't have to. I'm very charming. No one has to, you know, I don't have to guilt someone to being related to me to take care of me. Like the people are going to yeah. be, I'm going to be hanging around people like at that point. So me, I'm an introvert. I probably need someone related to me to, <laughs> Take care of me when I'm old, but, uh, or I need the uh, commune. I need communal longhouses to hang out in and which we'll get into <laughs> next time with the Iroquois. Yes. So that is where we are ending for now. We will pick back up with, uh, the next section, which gets into the Iroquois family structures and then a whole bunch of other family structures. So yeah, <laughs> buckle up next time. You'll get to hear which animal gen we would be. <laughs> yes. Yes. Get, start thinking about yours. Uh, yeah, the choices are, should we say the choices now or save them? Let's save them. Okay. All right. The choices are yet to be determined. Unless you go and do the reading for the second half, you'll find out the choices. That's true. Very true. If you want to be a nerd, go find out the choices. If you were, already were a nerd, you have already earned you know. your reward. Okay. So next week we are going to skip our usual shoot the shit and jump right back into part two of this episode. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts. Or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.